Father, thank you that we can live our lives as an act of worship to you. I pray that you would help us do so always. Every moment of every day of our lives can be an act of worship. Father, keep us from being distracted. Keep us, Lord, from looking to the things of the world for any type of satisfaction and instead to look to you. To know that you are near to each and every one of us, that you see each and every one of us. And you have a great desire for us to be in constant fellowship with you. In constant worship, constant service, constantly aware of your presence. So that we can live before the face of God. I pray, God, as we look into your word this morning, set aside our distractions. Set aside even the good things and the bad things that may have happened this week. And just help us to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we looked at the supreme importance of the Word of God. It's not the first time we did it. It's not going to be the last time we do it. Um, but we looked at the supreme importance of the Word of God in our lives. And how each of us should study to show ourselves approved unto God as his apprentices who will not be ashamed because we are each handling the word of God properly in our own lives. And in that passage, the end of chapter 5 through the first three verses of chapter 6, we're told to move on from the elementary principles of our faith and to move into completeness and maturity. And there were several topics there that we were given to consider. And then this last week during the daily devotion that I post, um, we covered those. So if you missed last week's sermon, highly encourage you to check it out. If you missed those devotions and you want to be a little more familiar with the concepts we talked about last week, it's all there for you. It's on our Facebook page. It's on uh, our website. It's on my YouTube page. It's all there. I highly encourage you check it out. However, today we're going to change directions just a little bit because Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Paul, this section, right? We were talking about Melchizedek and then Paul says, well, I want to talk about Melchizedek, but you're all dull of hearing because you need to handle the word of God rightly. Now he's going to get into this idea of eternal salvation. Next week, he's going to change directions a little bit again. Um, I kind of think Paul's a little like me, a little bit of ADHD. They didn't call that back back then, right? But a little bit. He was like, well, I want to talk about this. Now we got to talk about this. Now we got to talk about this. Now we got to talk about this. Then we get to chapter 7 and he goes, oh yeah, Melchizedek. <laughs> That's what we were talking about. Let's get back to Melchizedek. That's kind of what happens over the next, well, for our sakes, the next couple weeks um, as we move through. So today we're talking about the topic of eternal salvation. And whether or not a believer can lose their salvation. Ooh, it's a fun topic. It's a fun topic. A lot of people get really angry about this. They do. They get really angry about it. And a lot of people spill coffee on their shirt. Because, well, oh my goodness. I missed the microphone. So let's read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. And then we will go from there. 
For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth, which drinks in the rain, it often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Hmm. So I'm going to read the first couple verses again. As we get under point one, which I wrote in the notes, impossible to renew. For it is impossible. We're going to talk about that word. For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So this topic, what we call or are calling eternal security, some people call it once saved, always saved. Some people will call it something along the lines of, um, well, don't you hate that? When a perfectly good sentence just runs away from you? Here's another phrase. Well, if it comes back to me, we'll get to it. You guys are used to this by now. At least most of you should be. Um, there's a lot of people who call it a lot of different things. And this passage has been debated by those who fall on different sides of the topic, right? There are those who we might call diehard Calvinists who take eternal security to such an extreme that they believe and teach that once you are saved, you can never not be saved no matter what, and that people don't even have a choice in their salvation. Uh, this is not all Calvinists. I have a very good pastor friend here in town who's a Calvinist, or he would call himself a Calvinist, and he and I agree on this issue. So, now he's not that kind of Calvinist, <laughs> right? This type of diehard Calvinist, they refuse to evangelize, right? They will not go share the gospel with somebody just in case that person isn't predestined to salvation. Because what if they accidentally get saved and they weren't predestined and they're really not going to go to heaven? They will go so far as to teach that if a person rejects Jesus Christ their entire life, they refuse the gospel, they refuse to go to church, they deny the word of God, they deny that Jesus is the Son of God, they refuse his death and resurrection on the cross. However, they will teach you that if that person's predestined, they're going to heaven whether they want to or not. And it ain't here. Now, you probably remember, maybe not because it was about a year ago, when we were Romans 
in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, I had this really hard back then, but here we are again. It doesn't surprise me that these issues come up again and again in Scripture because it's that important. Right? That's die-hard Calvinist, what we might call tulip Calvinist. If you don't know what tulip stands for, look it up. I can never remember them all. Um, but some of the points I agree with, like the T I know stands for total depravity of man. Um, but the I stands for irresistible grace, which that's where people don't, if they don't want to get saved, it doesn't matter. They have no choice. Right? Calvinists completely dismiss human free will. This type of Calvinist completely dismisses human free will and all choice. Then there's the other side of the coin. And man, these, these guys, they're just as bad. They're just as bad on the other side, though. The Arminianists. Right? And of course, these two teachings arose by a guy named John Calvin and a guy named Joseph Arminius. <coughs> Neither one of them taught what is taught today, just so you know, by the extreme versions of these two lines of thought. But diehard Arminianists today, they dismiss the idea of a salvation that has any security whatsoever. They go completely the opposite. Right? Anybody sin this week? Anybody? I know. I, well, a couple people ain't putting their hands up. Wow! Now you just lied in church. You do whatever you want with that. Um, right? But we've all sinned this week. According to this extreme version of teaching, we've all lost our salvation. And if we die, we're going to hell, because we should. And the only way to make that right is to go back to church, to get saved again. Some of them will make you get baptized again, depending on how bad your sin was. All sin is bad. Right? Extremes. Extremes. Now, you've heard me say this before. So we're going to set aside man's ideas. Because even though Calvin, John Calvin contributed a lot of great things to Christianity, those who have taken his teachings at its extreme are off base. And even though Joseph Arminius contributed some great things to our faith, those who have taken his teachings to an extreme are way off base. So we're going to set aside man's ideas. Actually, set aside is a really nice thing. We're going to throw man's ideas in the garbage. And we're just going to let the Bible speak to us. How's that sound? All right. So let's go back to this passage. I've broken it down into eight components because there's, this is important for us to take the time to look at. Starts with, for it is impossible. The word for impossible means that it is unable or cannot be done. Now, this is not a word where we can think that there's only a small chance. Right? Oh, that's impossible. When we mean it's really unlikely that it's going to happen. Nope, doesn't mean that. Oh, that's impossible. Like, well, that, that's in, it's impossible for me, but maybe somebody else could do it. This word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, means there is no chance at all. Impossible. Absolute and un-
changing, no. Impossible. I want you to get that, because that's really important. I've heard people butcher this passage before. Right? Because we know that, there, that all things are possible with God. Right? So can God violate this? No. Want to know why? Because that would make him a liar. And God doesn't lie. Impossible. For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. Think about this. These are people who have been made to see and have experienced the heavenly gift of salvation. That's what the word tasted there means, is experience. The word enlightened means see. So not only have they seen salvation, right? It's not just been, they, they've been exposed to it, but they've experienced it. That's important, really important for our discussion today. Then it says they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. To be a partaker is to be a participant in. The word partaker means to be a participant in. So this person has participated in the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in them and baptized them into the body of Christ. A couple great verses uh, you should have in the bulletin notes, and it should be up behind me. John 14, 15 through 18, and then 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and being baptized into the body of Christ. Then it goes on, they have tasted the good word of God. This is the same as above. They have experienced the good word of God or responded to it in some way. And we know, according to Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing God's word. And not only have they tasted the good word of God, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. The persons being spoken of here has also experienced the miraculous power of God in their lives. The first miracle that every follower of Christ experiences is their own salvation that simple. That is still the greatest miracle of all time. That God could take me and apply the righteousness of Christ to my life. Right? Now I don't I don't know about you. I've heard people read this and say this does not describe a person who's saved. I don't see how you can read these verses and not picture someone Who's saved? They were enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've responded to the word of God. They've experienced the miraculous power of God in their lives. That is not a person who's not saved. It is not a person who's not saved. But diehard Calvinists have to dismiss this passage. They have to dismiss this passage. Because... Arminians love this passage. <laughs> I heart Calvinists have to dismiss this passage. When we were back in Romans 9, 10, and 11, I, I told you this story. Um, and I'm going to tell you this story again because this passage was included as well as several others. So a pastor that I served with in Oklahoma 
was a diehard Reformed Calvinist. Diehard. The church didn't do evangelism, and, and he did not believe, he believed that when you, you were predestined to salvation, you didn't have a choice. He also, we had very different uh, ideas about end times and a few other things. But we got into this conversation one day, and we were talking about not only end times, but also eternal security. And he literally, and I, I remember this, he said this to me. Well, you know, in order to make this theology work, you got to deal with certain passages in the Bible, like Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we were talking about Hebrews 6 at the time. I'm like, you don't deal with the passage in the Bible to make your theology work. If your theology doesn't work with the clear teaching of Scripture, you're wrong. You always will be. Now, does that mean he wasn't saved? That's not up to me. But that's not how it works. I believe what I believe because it's clearly shown in Scripture. Right? So we go on. This person who's being saved, if they fall away. The word literally means to apostatize, which is to renounce one's faith. This word carries with it the idea that this is a choice, not an accident. You cannot apostatize if you don't believe. You cannot renounce your faith if you're not really saved. But what's impossible? If this person who has gotten saved chooses to renounce their faith, you cannot renew them again to repentance. You can't restore them or renew them to a place where they turn away from their sin and back to God because they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open Shame. To crucify here, to crucify him here is figurative. As the person who does this intentionally and that renounces their faith, and then they would expect Jesus' sacrifice to apply to them again, shaming our Lord for what he has already done for us. Now I know this is this is not a fun passage. I get that. That can be quite bad news. I don't know any other way to see this description than to see it as a person who became a Christian and then intentionally walked away from their faith by renouncing their salvation in Christ. The person who does this, and I want to emphasize that it cannot be done on accident or because of some sin we've fallen into, but this person cannot come back according to the word of God. So what does that mean for our eternal security? You ready? We're going to talk about choice, the sovereignty of God, and eternal security. Number one, do we have free will, choice, or what we call free moral agency? Yes, we do. Oh, some people get upset with me when I say that. You can get upset with me all you want. We typically, apart from Christ, we use our free will very poorly. We use our free will to choose to do 
wrong. We use our free will to sin. But even when it comes to receiving the free gift of salvation, God has given us a choice. Romans 10, 9, and 11. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. If you're a diehard Calvinist, you don't like that verse. Why? What does it tell us to do? To confess, to believe, to believe, and then confess. Because whoever believes will not be put to shame. Does it say whoever's predestined will not be put to shame? Does it say whoever God saves without their choice will not be put to shame? Whoever believes, whoever confesses will not be put to shame. So according to that, we have a choice. That's one passage, guys. There's a lot more. So free will clearly taught in Scripture. Look, just read the Bible and see how many times people use their free will to do really stupid things. So the question is, right, so the Calvinists don't want you to understand that in Romans chapter 10. The Arminianists don't like my second point here. Is God sovereign and therefore chooses and predestines us to salvation in Christ. Yes. Again, yes. He is sovereign, and he does choose and predestine us to salvation because that's what the scriptures clearly teach. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Um, that passage says that he chose us and he predestined us. Anybody see that? Right? This isn't me twisting scripture to make you see something that I want you to see. It's just what the Bible says. John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they be me, may be one as we are. Who gives us to Jesus? The Father. So wait a second. Wait, 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 wait a second. Are you saying that we have free will and have to choose to be saved? Yes. Are you saying that God has chosen us and predestined us before the foundation of the world so we can be saved? Yes. How does that work together? Uh -huh. Is that helpful? Right? You want to go, go look at the degrees on my wall. Ah. Uh ah. -huh. Right? These are two truths that the Bible teaches. This is the best guess I can make, right? The best guesses I can make is because God is, among other things, omniscient. He knows everything. He knows what we'll choose. 
and can therefore predestine us before we make that choice. But even that explanation, I feel like, is a little weak. Because the reality is, we can believe fully and completely in the sovereignty of God and understand that human beings have the capacity to choose and often choose poorly. Because the Bible teaches both. And how they work together, you want to know, it's not our problem. I don't have to know how it works. God, God's God's problem. He's the one who wrote it. He has to know how it works. And we have to be okay with that. But the problem comes when the Arminianists say, well, no, God can't be sovereign because we have to choose. Or the Calvinists say, no, we can't have free will because God is sovereign. Why can't it be both? The Bible teaches both. In order to hold either one of those positions apart from the other, you have to ignore too many parts of Scripture. And, and I'm not talking about just a slightly different interpretation. I'm talking about ignore. And if you're ignoring any portion of Scripture, well, you're going to get off. You're going to be in the wrong place. You're not going to have the understanding that God wants you to have. So then we have to ask one more question. Number three. Are those of us who believe eternally secure in Christ? You ready for this answer? Yes. Talk about good news. Yes, but there's an exception. John 28 through 21, 29. John 10, I should give you the chapter. John 10, verses 28 and 29. And I give them eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them. Or if you have an old King James, I like the old King James better. Pluck. No one shall snatch or pluck them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I am eternally secure in Christ. And if you know Christ as Savior, so are you. Because nobody can pull me out of his hand. Nobody can pluck me out of his hand. A stupid mistake doesn't cause me to lose my salvation. I say this quite often. You don't lose Jesus. Right? It's not like you wake up one day and go, Man, where did I put my Savior? I don't know why I get Southern for that illustration, but I do every single time. Man, I just call Pat. What's up? I can't find Jesus. Well, where have you looked? I checked under the fridge, and I looked behind the couch, and looked through the dirty laundry basket. He's nowhere. Pat's like, wow, that's tough. Good thing I know where Jesus is at. Guess you're going to hell today. That's not the conversation we have. You don't lose Jesus. I do think we can lose him. And that's different. So here is the reality of the doctrine of salvation. There's a fancy word. I don't use my fancy words all that often, but I like this one because it's easy to say. Soteriology. 
the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. We cannot come to God through Jesus on our own. We know that. The Father chooses us. He draws us by his Holy Spirit and even gives us the faith to believe, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He gives us the faith to believe in him so we can receive his sovereign grace as a free gift. We can do nothing to save ourselves. We cannot add anything to the salvation offered to us in Christ. Got that. At the same time, God does give us a choice. We have to choose to believe. This is still an act of his sovereign grace. Because he gives us the faith. He sends his Holy Spirit to draw us to himself. He offers us the free gift of salvation. He's still the one doing all the work. But we have to choose. Are we going to respond to it? Or are we going to reject it? And we are not absolved of our choice. If we choose to reject him, eternal judgment is the consequence. Now we're going to talk more about that. Really what we call the unforgivable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in chapter 10. So you got to be around for a few more chapters. We'll get there, you know, sometime next year. Um, but once we have received the free gift of his salvation, he holds us in his hand. Both the Father and the Son do this. And no one can pluck us out of his hand, not even our own sin or stupidity. I get an amen. amen. I don't know about you, but if it was up to me, I would be in flames. I'd have been, I'd have been gone a long time ago if it was up to me. I read a thing online that I absolutely loved. It said, when God called you, he factored in your stupidity. And every time I read that, I'm like, oh, praise God. It's not like when you or I do something stupid that he's like, well, I didn't see that coming. Maybe I made a mistake with that guy. No. He knew every mistake I would make before I ever made it. Every mistake I'd make as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a follower of Christ, as a neighbor, as a son, as a brother. He knew it all called me anyway. John, we, we were talking a little bit about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, 2, 8 through 10, in Sunday school, that we are his masterpiece. And even though I know God doesn't make mistakes, I kind of think he used a dirty brush or something when he painted me. I don't know. I know he doesn't make mistakes. The mistakes are mine. But boggles my mind. And I love knowing that without the conscious choice to walk away from him, there's nothing I can do to lose my salvation. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is worth rejoicing over. 
But our passage in Hebrews does talk about that one exception I mentioned. What we read in verses 4, 5, and 6 is that this person who is saved can make the conscious choice to walk away. And I want this to be very, very clear. This will not be an accident. This will not be because you committed the grandmother of all sins, whatever that might be. I don't know what it is. I've probably come pretty close. It's not because you had a bad day and yelled at your spouse or yelled at your kids. It's not because you made a mistake in the past that rectifying that mistake is now causing consequences today. That doesn't do it. It's not because you had a bad day when you were driving and called one of your fellow drivers on the road some sort of inappropriate word that would change the rating of a movie from PG-13 to R. That doesn't do it. It's not right. You have to repent of that. I've had to repent of that. Right? That's not it. It's not because you missed church one week. Now, if you missed church two weeks, that's a different thing. No, I'm joking. It's not because you missed church one week. It's not because there was a day you, you forgot to read your Bible. Now, really, you know me. I'm not saying you should do that. You should read your Bible every day. Go back and listen to last week's message. You should be in church. It's good for you. We need the fellowship and the encouragement. We need to learn and grow and worship together. But that doesn't determine your salvation. Here's the reality. I've had people ask me before, well, I'm just worried that I messed up and now I'm not saved. And I tell them the same thing every time. If you're worried about it, you didn't do it. It's that simple. If you are still concerned about your relationship with Christ, then you have not walked away from it. I guarantee it. It's the person who goes, you know, I used to go to church. I used to believe the Bible. I used to believe in Jesus. And now I just, uh, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm done. I fear greatly for that person. Because the scripture tells us that when we know the truth of the gospel and then reject it, we are held to a greater level of accountability. That would frighten because I've blown it on many occasions. And you want to know something? I'll probably do it again. And every time, every time, I am heartbroken over my own sin. Every time I repent. And every time, if I've hurt somebody, I try to make it right. Every I don't want to hurt the people around me. I do sometimes. I know it. But he won't let me go. And he pulls me back. And then I repent. And then he might smack me around a little. Just because I've earned it. And by his grace, we move forward. 
but it has to be a conscious choice. So now one more point, and then we'll get the last two verses, I promise. Were they ever one of us? Were they ever really saved? And this becomes extremely important. Was that person, the one who walked away, were they ever really saved before they chose to walk away? John, in his first epistle, asked this question. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made fan manifest that none of them were of us. So this kind of adds to the complexity of this issue. Because according to Hebrews 6, it is possible to come to know the Lord Jesus and then choose to walk away. And if that happens, that person cannot be renewed. This passage makes that clear. However, John tells us that a person who appeared to be one of us but was never really saved when they left, all they did was demonstrate the fact that they were never really saved. Which means in the end, it would be possible that either is the case for a person who walks away from their faith. Maybe they were saved and they chose to walk away. Or maybe they never really were saved and just showed that they weren't saved by walking away. Which one is it? Anybody here know someone who's walked away from the faith? It looks like they've walked away from their faith. I do. I've met those people. So were they really saved? And they renounced their faith? Or were they never really saved? And they demonstrated that when they left? I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you something, neither do you. You want to know why? Because we can't tell the difference because we can't judge a person's heart. We can't. We can judge fruit. We're going to talk about that in a second, but we can't judge a person's heart. Only God can do that. So maybe you know someone who seems to have renounced their faith. Maybe they really did and there's no longer hope for them. But maybe they didn't. Maybe they were never really saved. And maybe we need to pray that they will truly come to Christ for salvation. And because we don't know, I am always going to assume that there's hope. That's just the way I am. I know. Those of you who know me know I'm a pretty cynical guy. I'm not terribly optimistic most of the time. Most of the time. I got to perform a funeral yesterday, and I didn't know the, the, the gentleman who passed away. I didn't know anybody in the family. I actually ended up doing this service as a favor for a pastor friend of mine because he was going to be out of town. And the family's sending me stuff, right? That they, oh, can you please make sure you tell everybody he's in a better place? I, I don't know if he's in a better place. Can you please tell everybody? 
that he's watching over us as an angel from heaven. Well, that's just a lie. I can't say that. It's just a lie. Right? I had several of these. One of the requests, can you please say the Hail Mary prayer? No. <laughs> that one was just, no. I'm not Catholic. I don't do that. No. That one was interesting. I've never been asked to do that. I've been a pastor for 18 years. No one's ever asked me to do that before. The better place, the angel watching over us, I've been asked to do that before. I've always said no. But still. So I did the only thing I know how to do. I shared the gospel. Because you want to know? I don't know if that man was saved. I hope he was. When I shared verses like Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. I hope that was this guy. I truly do. And if it wasn't, I really hope that the people there heard it. And they thought about it. Because it's coming for all of us. Now, I know I told this story before, but it popped into my head, so I'm going to share it. And then we'll jump into the last two verses. I one time did a funeral where the family were all believers, which is a really cool way to do a funeral. Until we sat down and met, and they informed me that their, I think it was the dad who died, was not a believer. That he had rejected Christ up to his dying moment. And they looked at me and they said, do not say that he's in a better place. Do not tell people that he's in heaven. It's not true. Okay. So what do you want me to do? Preach the gospel to the rest of their family because most of them don't know Jesus. I can do that. And that's how we did that funeral. It was the same funeral where at the end they wanted me to play Ring of Fire as the closing song. I shared that part, I know. Johnny Cash song. That's how they wanted to close the funeral. Went down, down, down to a burning ring of fire. I'm like, you really wanted to play that? That was the, the deceased's request that was in his, well, I'm like, that, that ain't right. How about Stairway to Heaven? How about, I don't know. Why don't we just play Highway to Hell by ACDC and make it sure, right? I mean, why be subtle about it? And I'll tell you, I did it. But that was the, it was the same family. They were like, nope, that's where he's down. He, he ain't looking down. He's looking up. Done, all right. I won't say it. I preach the gospel. But I always have hope because, man, life would suck without it. And because our hope is in Christ, our hope is in a now, verses 7 and 8, there are two more verses, I promise. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So basically, the last two verses illustrate the telltale sign of a person who truly has faith in Christ. We can't judge a heart, but we can consider the fruit. Listen to this passage from Matthew 17, 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, 
by their fruits, you will know them. So let's consider these last two verses in light of Jesus' words. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful to those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. Simply put, as we drink in the goodness of God, through his word and Holy Spirit at work in our lives, rain is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Joel chapter 2 talks about that, as well as other places. But as we do that, God will produce fruit in our lives that we will bear. We don't produce the fruit. We bear the fruit. Remember Jesus in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. The vine produces the fruit, the branches bear the fruit. Look at an apple tree or an orange tree, or a lemon tree, or whatever kind of tree you want that's that's a fruit-bearing tree, right? The branches, they get all leafy, and then the little buds kind of, and then all of a sudden there's an apple, and then a little while later the apple's right, you pluck it, you eat it, you're happy. Right? What happens if you cut the branch off the tree? Is that apple going to grow? Are there going to be buds? Are the leaves going to turn green? No, it's going to die. Because the branch doesn't produce the fruit. It bears the fruit produced We're the same way. As we abide in the vine, as we abide in Christ, he produces the fruit in us through his word, through the power of his spirit, and we bear it. But he produces it. And so we can look at each other's lives. Right? Don't look too close. But we can look at each other's lives. Is there change? Are we bearing the fruit God has called us to bear? But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Conversely, if there is no fruit in our lives, there is no evidence of our salvation as God works in and through us by his word and Holy Spirit, then that person will be cursed and cast out to be burned. That's also illustrated in John 15. If you're a branch that doesn't produce fruit, you get cut off and thrown into the fire. We're watching a television show. I told you I'd figure out how to do it. We're watching a television show. And uh, it's, it's funny and silly. Um, but there was this one moment in the show where one of the characters read a poem. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Jesus saved us long ago. If you don't believe, that's a shame. Come judgment day, you'll be in flames. I appreciate that a few people laughed at that. I almost fell out of my chair. I was laughing so hard. And I'm like, that's not funny. That is not funny. Because it's true. It's true. So it's not funny. But every time I think about it, I smile. I'm like, no, stop it. Bad, Jason. That's not funny. Eternal judgment is not a joke. But the poem's kind of So how do we ensure that there is fruit in our lives? We abide in Jesus Christ. John 15, 1 through 9, and then we'll close. John 15, 1 through 9, this is what Jesus said. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Oh, that one's fun, isn't it? Right? You're doing good. You're loving the Lord. He's working in and through your life. And so what does he do? Some kind of trial. 
some kind of difficulty, some kind of struggle, not a temptation, not a sin. He doesn't tempt us or make us sin. But he'll help us go through something or allow us to go through something so that he can prune us. So that he can shape us into the person he's called us to be. Anyways, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Oh, the moment you grasp that verse, your life will be incredibly better. I guarantee it. Without me, Jesus said this to each and every one of us, without me, you can do nothing. Yes. Yes. And more yes. I go back to my, one of my favorite memes on the internet. My kids always get mad at me when I try to explain a meme. But this is what it said. Two people are talking. One guy says, bro, do I need, really need Jesus to go to heaven? And the other guy says, bro, you need Jesus to go to Walmart. <laughs> right? Nothing without him. Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, listen to that, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now don't take that verse out of context. Who is the person who can ask and have it done for them? The person who's abiding in Christ. The person who's abiding in his word. The person who is bearing fruit as his disciple. Right? So if you're asking something selfish, is that abiding in him and in his word and being his disciple? Uh-uh. If you're asking to spend something amiss on your pleasures, as James would put it, is that abiding in him, abiding in his word, and being his disciple? Uh-uh. The person who abides in him is only going to want to pray for things and only going to ask for things that will bring him glory. The person who's abiding in his word is going to pray according to his will because that's what's revealed in his word. The person who is bearing fruit and is his disciple, or as I mentioned last week, the word disciple is better translated as apprentice because we're learning to be like him, hopefully. That person's not going to pray selfish or judgmental or vengeful prayers. That person is going to pray things that will bring God glory. And when we pray according to his will, 1 John tells us that he hears us and he answers. So how do we abide? Real quick. Oh, it's so beautiful. And this passage tells us the word abide simply means to dwell, constantly aware of the presence of God. How do we do that? I've talked a lot about silence and solitude. I told you a couple months ago that I started a five-minute-a-day practice of just being quiet before God. External noise, internal noise, getting rid of all of it, and just being quiet before God with the intention of going from five minutes to maybe ten minutes to maybe fifteen minutes still at five minutes and it's still hard to quiet my mind right external noise is easy to get rid of 
But quieting my mind is so hard. I'm still trying. And when I'm a little more successful, some days I'm a little more successful than others, it's life-giving to just be quiet before God. Right? How else do we abide in him? Prayer. How else? He told us. In his word. In church. In service. Make Jesus your life. I was listening to a message the other day, one of the greatest sentences I've ever heard in a sermon in my entire life. And it never dawned on me. I've been a Christian for 25 years. I've been a pastor for 18 of them. This was one of the most amazing statements I've ever heard. The best thing about being a Christian is Jesus. <laughs> Duh. I've just never heard it said like that. Right? It's not the church. The church is great, but it's not the church. It's him. The best thing about following him is him. Oh, so good. That was by John Mark Comer. I'll give credit where credit's due. <laughs> Let's close. The word of God is so rich and so deep as we talked about moving beyond the elementary principles last week. And this is what I think Paul was talking about. God wants us to be mature in Christ so we can grow into these doctrines and have a greater understanding of who we are in Christ. As we close, we need to know salvation is all of God. He does everything. He draws us to himself according to his sovereign will. When he does this, we do have a choice to receive his free gift or reject it. When we receive it, we are eternally secure in him as long as we do not intentionally renounce our faith and walk away from him. This is what we talked about back in Hebrews 3.6, that Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm to the end. So a couple questions and we're done. Have you come to faith in Christ? That's always number one. Have you come to faith in Christ so that you can know that you are eternally secure in him. If not, he is calling you right now. Choose to respond. If you are concerned that you may have walked away from your faith, rest assured, you haven't. Because if you're concerned, then you haven't done it. The person who has renounced their faith doesn't care anymore. This has to be a conscious and intentional choice. But if you're concerned, you haven't renounced your faith. But have you in some way walked away and now you're concerned that you can't come back? Well, there is the possibility that you were never really saved. You just kind of thought, you went to church, I must be going to heaven. Or maybe, as a follower of Christ, you have truly backslidden, fallen into some sort of sin that is taking you away from your relationship with Christ. But again, if you're concerned then you haven't truly fallen away. And coming back just takes one step. Repentance. Ah, people get all buggered these days. Oh, don't, don't talk about sin and repentance. Why not? We're sinners who need to repent. And repentance isn't a dirty word. It is a beautiful word. I love that word. I do it a lot. Because that's the gateway to coming back into fellowship with God. Why wouldn't we walk through it? 
So finally, this, this, is, this is the fun one for the week. What is the fruit in your life that is the evidence of your salvation in Christ? Is there a clear change? Sorrow over sin? Are you serving? Is the power of God's spirit and word working in and through you? We can ask a lot of other questions along those lines. And I'm going to tell you something. I can't answer that for you. I can only answer it for me. I don't like the entire answer. Some of it's good, but not all of it. I know that. But self-reflection is always good for us, especially when that self-reflection is guided by the Word of God and the power of His Spirit. So I'm going to leave you with that, that good news. You bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. I love you. Because you love me, and I'm a dirty, rotten sinner too. Saved by the good grace of our amazing God. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your amazing love for us. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us and lead us into the fruit that you want us to bear, the fruit that's going to bring you glory. I pray, Lord, that you would just bless us as we seek you. Give us wisdom. If there's things we need to change, show us how strengthen us to do so. There's things we need to do in order to serve you in a greater way. Show us what they are and enable us to follow the path you've laid before us. Thank you for our security in Christ. May none of us ever walk alone. In Jesus' name, amen.